Imagine what it'd be like if we were really curious about each other. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Relational Spirituality, the weekly podcast of LargerStory.com, the podcast that sees all relationships as spiritual and all spiritual formation as relational. Now, here's your host for this week, Carlene Cannon. larger story audience. We're so glad that you have joined us today. My name is Carlene Cannon and I am the Director of Content and Product Development here at Larger Story. And joining me today is my good friend Roseanne Moore. And I am Communications Director at Larger Story and um, Carlene and I have had a chance to work together for what? Almost two years? Yeah. Maybe. And it's it's been a lot of fun. So we're going to have, we're going to bring you into some of that fun today in, in this conversation, hopefully introducing the podcast that we're beginning, the Relational Spirituality Podcast. And each of us are going to have our own series, but today is just about introducing ourselves to you. We had, we had talked a little bit about, you had asked me the question like how do what do we want to talk about today and you we went back and forth with that a little bit and you've got the outline and questions so I'm gonna let you start okay well one of the things that I appreciate most about working with you Roseanne is that in the middle of the work that we do we find time to connect and relate and you know we're always working on topics and content that have to do with relational spirituality but you're really faithful to make sure that we actually experience that together. And so I'm looking forward to this conversation and how we get to do that and share that with others. I think the first thing we talked about was what the shaping events were in our lives that kind of most drew us to God and that he used in our lives to draw us to him. And so I don't know if you want to share a little bit about your story and how God used the events of your life to to shape you and to relate to you. Um, I think that would be an interesting thing to hear about. Yeah. I, we're looking this month at the book, the pressures off. And so even thinking about the shaping events in those terms, I grew up in a Christian home that was very ministry focused. My dad was the, a Christian camp and for black kids in Columbia, South Carolina, this is in the early seventies. And we were in an integrated church that my parents helped start with some black couples, three white couples, three black couples that they started in 1971. I had no idea what an anomaly though. Really it hit me about 10 years ago, how amazingly ahead of the time. That was. I mean, that was astonishing because I grew, I lived in Columbia, South Carolina in the 90s, and the big controversy was taking the Confederate flag off of the Capitol. So your parents were 20, 30 years ahead of their time for sure. That's amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I'm so grateful to this day because I have a lot of Black friends, and, and I grew up thinking of the body of Christ as being multicultural not just like not just integrated racially but multicultural because we had a lot of students from Columbia Bible College some of which 
in the church and then some which actually lived with us on the campground oh. for a period of time. And so so we had a Jewish family in the church. We had a Hispanic family. It was a very small church. Yeah. So like a bit a family of five or six people right. was a, a good chunk of the church congregation, yeah. you know. And so there are things like that that I'm super grateful for. But I also, I think I grew up with a strong message of, well, the, I, my, the message, I, I had a dual message running. I can remember times when I was out in the woods on the campground where I had this sense of God's presence mm. with me and of him wooing my heart mm. that were very just tender and and very intense very like it was very much an awareness another of another presence me. with me yeah. and yeah. and drawing me but then i also had kind of this message that was coming in other places that and not so much at church interestingly enough but in other places mm-hmm. god Send his son because you are so bad that you deserve to hell. And because that's true, you know, he, Jesus is, was more, Jesus is so good that he did this. Mm -hmm. And if you really are grateful for it, you'll spend, you'll not only accept him, but you'll spend the rest of your life trying to make, you you can never make up for what he did, but, but you'll spend the rest of your life. You can never earn it, but you will spend all your effort trying to earn it. Yeah. (laughs) That's a message a lot of us are familiar with. Yes. And so that, I would say the shaping influence of my early years was a fear of being rejected by God. Mm -hmm. Because ironically, the night that I like prayed the prayer to, to ask Jesus to be my savior, like the stunning thought of that night was, you mean he might not? Wow. Like up until that point, I had had these encounters where I thought he wanted me. And, and so there was this terror of, of fear of rejection from God. And so there was this dual thing of a genuine love, Mm -hmm. but then there's also this terror that was of, of losing that. And when I was nine, we moved to Rock Hill to be closer to elderly relatives that were meeting. My dad was the was an only child, and mm-hmm. there were his parents and some aunts and uncles who were childless, and he was the only young relative nearby. So we went to be near them, and I moved into a very fundamentalist environment that it was like you prove sacrifice is the way (laughs) and, and missions is the best way to prove that you're serious, you know? And so, and good, like good hearted people. I am not denying that, but I, the message was very strong that you, it was a pressures on. (laughs) So those were, I would say that was early shaping mm-hmm. events. And it wasn't, it was my senior year of high school when I had the 
youth group poster child, right. you know, and I had done the mission trips and I was planning to go into full-time ministry and on the mission field, you know, I was headed to Bible college to do all of those things. My senior year of high school, the summer before that, I had begun praying, God, no matter what it takes, make me more. Wow. That's a courageous prayer. I had no idea. Well, I, I kind of did expect it to be bad or hard because that was the message I had been given about what God was like, you know, and some, in late September, I got sick. Mm. We initially thought it was just like flu then thought it was mono. By the end of my senior year, I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease. And for the next nine years, I would be housebound and bedridden. And it was during that time that God kind of took apart a lot of that because I couldn't perform. Right. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, I'd say those were, those were, what about you? Because those were the early things. Yeah, well, I would say there's some really similar themes in my story. Not so much the multicultural experience that feels really unique and rare to me, certainly for that time period. But I also grew up in a Christian home and went to a small church in the early years and grew up very much not only believing that I needed to, that that salvation was a free gift, but this sort of cognitive dissonance that I needed to earn it, but also mm-hmm. sort of convinced that I could earn it because I had succeeded at the good girl, you know, approach to managing life. And right. if things happened in there, my parents got divorced when I was 10. And so that was obviously a shaping event that, you know, in the 80s had a lot of, it was 1980, had a lot of stigma attached. And we ended up having to leave our church and finding a home in a larger church that had more families that had experienced what we had. And there was no real support for an event like that in your life. Like I never, nobody talked to me or asked me what I thought or felt, you know? So I just found a way to cope and, and just kept doing all the right things, thinking that, and I think even for me, there was this undertone of, <clears throat> and it, if I can even perform that much better than everyone else, then I've got this buffer. So like I am, right. I am extra good and I sort of seal the deal or just done the, the the extra things necessary to make sure there's nothing against me. And then I had a similar decade of that performance mentality being deconstructed. It just looked really different from yours. I just failed a lot. You know, <laughs> I actually went to a, to a prestigious university and was not prepared. And so, you know, having always made literally almost perfect grades, really struggled to perform academically. And it was around a level of just academic capacity that I hadn't experienced before. And then really struggled with a career. I think, you know, when we were coming up into adulthood, there was this 
societal sort of belief that you could have it all, you know, you could have a career and have a family and you could, you could do it all. And so definitely felt a lot of pressure to be successful in the workplace and, but also eventually wanting a family. And so my twenties were really about all of those. I don't even know if you call them dreams. They were just sort of givens kind of expectations kind of being shattered I really struggled to find a job that I enjoyed and was good at um and I think I would say had an identity crisis of sorts Mm -hmm. and one of the things that God was really after in me was that perfectionism and sort of belief that I could be good enough and he smashed mm-hmm. that to smithereens. <laughs> and I'm really grateful, but it was painful. It was, it was a time where I really had to search for who I am and who God both created me to be and wanted me to be. And while I think my experience of the pressure coming off has happened in sort of layers over decades, that was probably the first layer was... I remember coming to a realization that the drive for perfection and performance in me was part of God's image in me. Like he's perfect. He always performs well, but it wasn't the path to him. You know, it wasn't how I got to him because he had done the work of getting to me. And so that was probably the first step for me in that journey. So I find it interesting that God was doing similar things in us in such different ways. Yeah, it, it, it makes me wonder too, and maybe as as we continue this, it makes me kind of wonder how how much of the work of spiritual formation is kind of seasonally mm-hmm. shaped, yeah. Yeah. you know, and and across regardless of what what life looks right. like. There just seems to be certain seasons of life that, and you probably, I think it sounds like you were like me and that you probably got a lot of praise for the very thing that was was totally affirmed. That's that's absolutely true. I was very much affirmed for all of the performance things that, you know, sort of checked boxes on my ticket to heaven or whatever. And, and even, I mean, I don't even know that I necessarily thought about it like that. It was just more the things I needed to do. I should do. I ought to do like, I was really pleased with that. And the one thing for, in my story, I'm an only child. I was adopted and then my parents divorced. So there's a lot of aloneness in my story, certainly until I got to college and One of the sort of natural conclusions for me in all of that was I was a really good doer. I was really good at accomplishing things and being, you know, smart, successful, effective, you know, accomplished. But I really didn't know how to relate. And I actually concluded that I wasn't relational, which was this insidious message and theme and lie that that the enemy uses against me even today still 
to keep me separate from God and others and myself even. I'm, I'm, that's, I'm curious what, say more about that, not relational, like that you weren't good at it or that you didn't need it or what? All of the above. All of the above. I think because I had spent so much time as a kid, like I was, you know, the stereotypical latchkey kid after my parents divorced. And so I spent a lot of time alone. I think I'm naturally introverted. So that compounded the, my comfort level with being alone. And I, I didn't have siblings. So like when my kids were like early school age, I remember thinking they have had more relational engagement in their like six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years than I had in the first 30 years of my life. So I just experienced wow. a real lack of relational interaction and and, and and coped with it. So was easily able to believe that I was neither good at relationship, nor did I really need it. And, and I really bought into the real, very damaging fallacy that I could be self-sufficient. And, and not only that I could be, but that I really should be. And mm -hmm. so lots of things that fed that message, but kind of got to my first real encounter with Larry's thoughts and books and went to my first SSD and kind of believed that I just wasn't a relational person. That's, I would have used those words. And oh. one, of the, one of the most shocking things was for me was the assertion that human beings are essentially relational and God is essentially relational and that, you right. know, we're designed to love and be loved. And I actually first heard those words and just said, that's not true because that's not me. So how can it be true? And so it was a long process uh -huh. of sort of actually accepting that I am relational, that I am designed to love and be loved and that I can love and be loved. That was kind of the right. next phase of my journey in a lot of ways. Wow. So when did that happen? When did that kind of that awareness, how, what, what stage of life did you, yeah. were you married, had yeah. kids at that point? Yeah, I was. Okay. So, you know, my thirties were kind of just frantically trying to make life work. You know, we would add a new person to our family every couple of years and life would get more complex and and as my kids got older especially my oldest I think I became even more aware of how unpracticed I was at relating you know as she became more fully formed relationally and needed more from me I became more aware of my deficits and my coping strategies became more obviously problematic. And so that kind of lived through my 30s. And in when I, the year I turned 40, we had the, what we call in our family lore, the year of the six funerals, because we had a major funeral every two to three months. Oh, wow. Both of our fathers died. Wow. 
an uncle who was almost like a father to me passed away, an aunt. And then we had two people in our close community group die suddenly. And so it was just a, you know, it was a year where so many things were happening that you sort of had to just stop and take account of everything that was going on. And it was also the year that we kind of got reintroduced to Larry and his body of work. So all of a sudden we had all these new thoughts and ideas to help us in the processing and absorb absorbing these other big life events. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I relate to it's interesting. My early years, my church experience was very, mm. but most of my life was on the campground. And mm. so it was very isolated. We didn't have neighbors. I mean, we did, we had a few mm -hmm. neighbors, mm -hmm. but, but the, the family that was closest to us, their youngest child was several years older. Mm -hmm. So she was in school while I was still at home. Or then, you know, things like yeah. that. So we had about three weeks a summer where it was like feast yeah. of relational feast. Right. And the rest of the time it felt like. <laughs> yeah. And so I think, I think that was part of my. And then when we, when we moved to Rock Hill, it became, I was very much dumped in the middle of the, the the initial church experience didn't have youth groups and like a lot of ch like everybody worshiped together mm -hmm. for the mm -hmm. most part. They did have some Sunday mm -hmm. school and things like that, but it was more church family. Mm -hmm. Whereas everything became program oriented when we moved to Rock right. Hill. So it was very separate, yeah. but very much with my peer yeah. group. So all of a sudden I was, I can relate. I say this cause I can relate to the whole thing of feeling like, mm -hmm. I'm just different. Yeah. I don't fit. Yeah. I'm alone yeah. in the middle of this crowd. Right. We were we were poor compared yeah. to a lot of the people in the church. So yeah. there was a sense of always not fitting in from that standpoint. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think I spent a lot of those years trying to create my own communities. Oh. Rather than just going, I don't need people. Yeah. It was like I was always trying to create my own sense of community. But like you, I wasn't really good at. I don't think I was good at healthy relating. Mm. A lot of it was performance based, mm -hmm. so it was it was about mm -hmm. me and meeting my need mm -hmm. for community yeah. rather than than seeing other people as who they were. And then when I got sick, of course, everything went into isolation. Right. Everybody else's life went on and I had nothing, yeah. you know, yeah, um, I had almost nobody. I had a few friends who were also dealing with health problems, but they were at a distance. So we're writing letters or right. doing the occasional phone. Wow. I can't imagine how challenging that time must have been. Today, <clears throat> you know, we have you know, texting and, you know, all constant access to people far away through phones and technology. But in those days, it was waiting on a letter to come in the mail or a long distance phone call that cost, you know, 
however many cents a minute. (laughs) And so I can't imagine how, how that must have impacted you to suddenly be not only, as you mentioned earlier, unable to perform, but just unable to access or reach people. What was Mm -hmm. that like? And how did that form you in that time? I think the worst part of it was, well, well, several things. One, I was used to being performing well and being respected for performing well. So initially when I got sick and we were trying to get a diagnosis, the tendency with autoimmune diseases, it takes a while. Initial tests don't come back showing things wrong, usually. And so, so I went through this long period of it. It felt it was six months, so it felt long. It was actually short compared to what's typical in a situation like that. But six months of trying to get diagnosed, trying to explain what was going on in my body and being treated like I was lazy or making it up or like very dismissive. So all of a sudden I went from being respected for my performance to being treated with sort of this contemptuous disregard and so so even after I got a diagnosis anytime I had to go outside of my specialist and the people who were familiar with what I was dealing with it was common to run into that in other places and and I didn't know from you know I my energy level would ebb and flow depending on Mm -hmm what was happening in the cycle of my illness. I never knew when I was going to be able to, if somebody asked me if they could come by, I wasn't sure whether I was going to be well enough to do it when they did come pressure to perform. And I couldn't guarantee that I could perform. So it was, sometimes it was like, I don't even want to try, you know, I want to connect, but I don't want to run into the risk of failing. And, and, And I think the other part of that that was really hard relationally was my, and this is pretty common when you have an illness that where you have neurological implications, which Mm -hmm. I had, I was having petty mal seizures among other things, but, but I, my days and nights got like one week a month, my, my, it was like my body had reverted to a 25 hour day. So my sleep schedule was changing constantly. So I'd have about one week a month where I would go to bed as my family was getting up and they would go to bed as I was getting up. So I think that was the most, I don't even know what the words are. It was the most isolating. uh, The Psalms became really important to me. All the Psalms of, in the prophets, I had not liked the prophets before that they just seemed really negative (laughs) and during those years i i learned to really love the the prophetic books and find redemption was actually the the theme of them but i could relate yeah Yeah. the hope but also the lament Uh like i i could relate to them the the whole the crying out in the night the the isolation all of that and so after about nine 
years of that when I, I had kind of come to a point where I was like, I, I feel like I've done everything in the midst of this. I've tried to draw near to you, God. I've tried to be available as I can to other people who are hurting, who are sick. You know, I, I, I've done what I can to be present and to offer you this time and I'm getting worse and worse. And I wish you would just heal me or take me home. Like I'm, I'm kind of done, you know, at, at 26, I was like, I don't know how much longer I can live with this level of physical pain. And kind of said, Lord, I'm, I'm at this place and looking at your word. And it seems like either you are not who you say you are. Like you're a liar. You don't keep your promises. And I don't believe that's right. true. Or there's something about me that's like so bad that I'm not like, I don't, I've disqualified mm-hmm. myself somehow. Mm-hmm. Or there's something about you that I don't know. And I need to know to be able to go right. on. And over the next six months, the Lord just began he had been working during those nine years Mm -hmm. of peeling back the legalism and the perfectionism and, and just letting me rest in that his love for me was there because I was his, Mm -hmm. not because I could perform or not perform, but in Larry's books were very much a part of that. I actually started reading Larry's books during high school when I was playing (laughs) when I was planning to be in ministry, because there was something about his books that was different from everything else. Mm -hmm. Like that was the height of kind of the Christian psychology movement coming to be a big thing. And his books were significantly different Mm -hmm. than all of the other Christian psychology books. There was just something that was different. And so I had always been drawn to his books. I had always been drawn to Philip Yancey's Mm -hmm. books starting in high school, but all the, his books with Paul Brand Mm -hmm. about, 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 you know, and, but during this time I had kind of gotten to the point where I get it. We're shaped in the midst of pain. You draw us near in the midst. I'm done. (laughs) I think I've learned everything about that. I possibly can. I'm ready. Either we're moving on to heaven or you got to do something because I can't, or you got to give me more grace. And I don't really want that quite. I was being at some point in our lives getting to that place. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, yeah, for me, it was, so it was like my late twenties. I unexpectedly, and it, it would be a whole story on its own. We don't have time for that, but I unexpectedly, very dramatic and very miraculously I mean, like, go into a service with a mask on because by this time, my whole, my whole immune system had melted down multiple body systems by, by this point. So I went in with the mask on in a wheelchair, lay on a mat at the back of the service, walked out three days later, healed completely. Like, and it didn't fit my theology. What was that like? Like, what, if you don't mind me asking, how did you experience the reality of being healed supernaturally? It was like, I mean, it was like being resurrected from the dead. Honestly, yeah. it was. 
It was. It was like being resurrected from the dead. I can remember walking down the aisles of the grocery store just days after I got healed and smelling all the candles because like I had been so allergic to everything because of my immune system melting down. Like the hint of like if my brother went to the mall and he was around somebody who had perfume on, the smell of that on his clothes could put me into anaphylactic shock before. Wow. And so to be able to walk through a grocery store and like sniff the candles and have no reaction, wow. it was just, it was like the whole world had right. opened up again. Right. And, and my, I just felt incredibly open to God and to the world and to people and hopeful. And, but we don't get to bypass anything. <laughs> You know, I had spent nine years in some ways old for my age because of facing death so many times during that. But I had also missed nine years of normal, like, relational interaction and development and all of, you know, independence that young adults in their 20s usually. And so it was. I, I, the only thing I could think it would be, it would be probably like is somebody who had been in a coma for years and then they wake up and like the world has moved on wow, and they're glad to be awake, but trying to figure out how do I fit here, (laughs) you know? And so, yeah, it was up because of that, going to a ministry that had been involved in the situation where I was healed. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like the logical, like spirit led thing to yeah. do because, you know, and that had a ministry because I thought, oh, now I know what those years were about. I mean, oh. this was my thought. Now I know what those years were about. Now it makes sense why I got allowed that because now I'm going to be able to help other mm-hmm. people. Yeah. And I went there. I was going to be part of the ministry staff. I ended up meeting the man who became my husband, who was on staff. There were things about the organization that I saw early that seemed concerning. And when I brought them up, it would always, I was always responded to with things like, oh, you know, you just don't understand the whole story. You don't know what's going on behind the scenes. You know, that's accusation. Yeah, you're the problem. You're, yeah. you're making- yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. If I persisted, yeah, it was definitely you're the problem. And so, yeah, so I ended up getting and and then because he was on staff, I did get to see behind the scenes and the the church, the organization was very unhealthy, very toxic. I would say it was cult-like in its control of people. So I had actually kind of gone from one form of legalism, like the pendulum Hmm. in in terms of outer Uh stuff, But in another whole sense, it was a different kind of legalism because it was almost this legalism of faith and positivity and things happening a certain way. Like a the the early group would not have 
viewed physical prosperity mm-hmm. or health or anything like that as a sign of God's right. favor. It would be your do's and don'ts right. list, whether or not you right. did. The other group, it was, it was more the, it was you, if you were health, if you were obeying the Lord and you were honoring him, then you would be healthy. Women would have fast, easy, painless childbirths because wow. one woman there or two women there had fast, easy, painless, right. or virtually painless <laughs> childbirths. The rest of us didn't. And I was the only woman of childbearing age there who was having C-sections oh, wow. because I had a medical malpractice situation with my firstborn oh, no. that almost killed both of wow. us. So here I am pushing back about against things that are... Yeah that don't add up to me. And then I'm the, I'm the woman who's having the season. Wow. (laughs) So there was a lot of, again, it was the whole thing of do him. I think as I look back on those years, it was a question of, am I going to believe that what Jesus has done for me and who he says, I, is that what I'm really going to trust in? Right. Or am I going to trust in my ability to do it right? It would, as I look back, I think the Lord was shooting down a lot of idols that were still left over and wrong thinking that was left over from the, the first, even from my early years, by the time we I ended up being there for a decade and then shortly and during that time we had four children that lived. We lost one. And by the time we left and God got us out, I have no question that God, God delivered us. I kept thinking that things going on in my marriage with my husband would be would improve if he were out of that unhealthy environment because he kept blaming it on the abuse at work. Right. His behavior at home got blamed on the abuse at work. And once we got out, it was like he fell like he, he totally fell apart. Yeah. And and so I spent two years kind of researching what do abusive toxic systems look like whether it's a, ch- a church or a business or a family or a country, right. Right. <laughs> the, di- you know, a religious group, yeah. it doesn't yeah. matter. The dynamics are pretty much the same. So, yeah, I'm f- rambling far. <laughs> I have so many questions and it's interesting. Excuse me. As much as we've talked, there's so many things I'm learning about your story and then more parallels than I recognized, but to my story, but I do want to ask the question because the thing I think I'm most curious about is how, excuse me, how, how in the arc of this whole story that you graciously shared with us, so many things I think would have tempted you to turn away from God, turn away from faith, turn away from church, like just year after year after year so much that would that was actively i think trying to tell you that 
it's not real. God's not good. You know, wh whatever, whatever the message is, but something in that vein. And yet there was always something that held you fast, that, that kept you close. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Like, how did you, how were you able to stay on the narrow road, on the journey toward God when so many things were telling you you couldn't trust him? Yeah, I honestly, I think my earliest memory, on, truly my earliest memory, I was a, a toddler in an airplane on the way back from California with, we had been to visit my great grandfather in California, three, four, something like that. I can remember kneeling on the seat and looking out the window and looking at the stars and being overcome as a small child with an awareness that how fast yeah. the universe, what like the world. And in that moment, suddenly being aware of being present with God and that being seen, I'm going to lose it, but seen and known by right. him. Wow. And throughout my life, I think there have been enough of those times. And I do, I have always my whole life wrestled with, wrestled with the goodness of God mm -hmm. and that the things that happened are not my definition of good. Mm -hmm. I was actually talking yesterday, full disclosure, because we're going to be, <laughs> I have three friends from SSD and, or Next Step, I guess they were Next yeah. Step that we met. Next Step 4 that I meet with, we try to meet on a monthly basis. Mm -hmm. And I was telling them yesterday, I was just really wrestling with that. The times that come where there is a lot that happens and that has happened in my life that does not make sense to me. It doesn't, uh, it, it doesn't make sense yeah. to me. And uh, when I have those times where the Lord just kind of speaks in that and says, I see you, I find that that's enough yeah. to keep yeah. going. Cool. I remember at one point after an SSD, like kind of processing what, what was going on. And the Lord just gave me this picture of, and it was in the middle, it was in the height of, of my divorce mm -hmm. and my divorce was dangerous. And my kids were in a very dangerous situation. We were, I work now with women who, who've been, are in abusive relationships, yeah. leaving abusive relationships. I know now what I did not then that we would have been at very high risk for a familicide situation. Yeah. And, but I remember in the middle of that, as I was crying out to the Lord, the Lord just gave the, and I was wrestling with all of the ways that I could not or had not mm. protected my children mm. the way that I, they needed and that I wanted to. Yeah. The Lord gave me this picture of just of my naked smeared with excrement in, in the midst of broken glass and just the enemy. Like I was curled up in a fetal position in that just completely broken and helpless. And there was all of this accusation of 
everything that I had done wrong. Like it was just, I was overwhelmed with it. And the things that were coming were the things that were true. They weren't all, even all the accusations I was dealing with, which weren't all true. But these were the ones that, you know, and, and, and in the middle of it, the Lord just spoke into it and said, none of that matters because she's mine. I've written my name on her heart and she will never leave me because I have written my name on her heart. And. And then like all of it stopped, you know? And so honestly, Carlene, I, like, I wrestle a lot. I don't have a great faith. (laughs) That is not true. (laughs) I do. I wrestle a lot. I think the one who (laughs) and Larry kind of gave me permission. I, my, I started doing this during the years that I was sick, sort of because I had to. And then Larry kind of gave me full permission in the Papa prayer, but to just come and be honest, like it didn't matter what was going on because he knew it anyway. And I think, so I think for me, faith doesn't look like a great confidence as much as it looks. You already know all of this. I'm not going to hide it from you. We got to talk about it because I need a savior. And, and I think that's the one thing in all of my life. As I look back on, I follow Jesus because I, which is kind of an amazing thing when you come from like little miss perfect, do it. We're going to wrestle this. I mean, (laughs) I just think you have shared from your heart, obviously. And, done a beautiful job painting the picture of what we most want to do in larger story with this podcast of and I just thought you know our our title is the relational spirituality podcast belong become be known and you just talked about that like maybe you're the communication (laughs) director I don't know but out of you and you know one of the questions we talked about wanting to discuss was what do we want to offer those coming along, you know, through those same seasons of life now? What What is something that we could offer to them and how could we reach out and be a support in places where maybe we didn't get supported in ways that we needed to? And I just think you articulated beautifully how no matter what the situation, no matter the particulars, that one, God has invited us not to a blind faith, but to a real relational, wrestling, questioning, investigative kind of faith. That That's actually what he wants. He wants all of our selves, our, our doubts and fears and shame. And, and he offers something <clears throat> really powerful when we, when we give those things to him. And that that's what we're about here at Larger Story is that kind of lifestyle where the pressure is off because God is asking us to come be part of his community, to belong to him, to become like him, to be known by him and others who know him. So, yeah, I just so appreciate your heart and... (laughs) the real gritty authentic way that god has has shaped you and has 
offered you back to us. It's a real gift. The benefit of failure is you don't have anything to lose anymore. <laughs> True. That's a you just got a coffee cup. <laughs> but really, I mean, if it's enough, if his grace is enough, when we we cannot save ourselves, then his grace is enough in everything, right? So, yeah. So I'm I'm curious. I want to go back. <laughs> you said there were a lot of pieces of what I said that you related to. Yeah. I would like to hear like where was that for you? Because your your season looked it different. Did. It was a lot different. We have talked enough that yeah. You know, I know there that- are a couple of things, but one one that was really interesting to me that was kind of odd is I was as I was listening to you talk, I was kind of tracking the role that shame played in the lives and i you know i have my own story of shame and how shame has attacked and but what was interesting to me is one of the odd connections was the whole c-section conversation i had four c-sections too and just the way something that i didn't do that you didn't do that like that was a totally random medical necessity and yet I probably battled with shame over that for I don't know five to ten years and and how little help there was you know yes. and and yes. it just made me think about I mean that was just a you know sort of an eclectic way that our stories connected but just how effective the enemy is and using shame over anything, you know, like someone else might hear about this, you know, battle with shame over a C-section and think it's just ridiculous, but it's very real. And you have people speaking about it in certain ways. And I did too, that were different, but still really powerful. And well, what's the message, right? When you're going into your first childbirth and you're nervous because you've never done it before. Women have been doing this for centuries and then it doesn't work for you the way it's supposed to. What does that say about you? You know, that, yeah. Life on performing well, you failed at the most basic, you know, biological thing. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I relate. (laughs) Yes. And so, so yeah, I just, and I, do you think that impacted your parenting? I'm sorry. Oh, go lots ahead. Of, yes, Finish. lots of things around that first a birth trauma, which I, you know, I didn't even think of it as a trauma, but now, 25 years later, and reading other things and other people's experience, it was incredibly traumatic. But yes, and I think one thing that maybe sort of started me as you were telling your story about C sections was you know, how much we have to offer. I mean, I just think of like your kids and my kids are close to the same age as I've got one who's 25 all the way down to 14 and what you're like 22 to 20 to almost 15. Yeah. You know, they're just entering these seasons of life. And I know that you have a similar passion to mine of not wanting to pave a, a smooth path for them where they don't experience any any difficulty because I think we're both convinced that that is the way the way those are typically the ways God uses to draw his children to himself and that is my greatest desire is that my kids be close to God but 
I do want to be there for them in the challenges in ways that I didn't feel like I had people as part of my life. And so as you, as you think about that, you know, and you think about what we're doing here at Larger Story with this podcast, what is on your heart to offer not just younger people, but maybe more specifically younger people, but just to offer people as we talk? I think the whole thing of holy curiosity, you were, when you were talking earlier about what it was like for you being a, a child with your, your parents having gone through a divorce, like having lost your first church, having to, and yet still nobody asked how you were. Yeah. There was the stigma, all of that. Like, I think what would it have been like for you to have had somebody come along during that time? And to say, what do you, like to, to draw that out of you, to let you ha- have a sounding board and a place for that. I've tried to do that with my kids. I've tried to make sure they had other people besides sure. me to do that with. Yeah. And then to like the, with the whole C-section thing, instead of uh, the people who helped me the most during that season were the ones who let me grieve. I had a, I had a friend who was battling infertility. Like one of my closest friends was battling infertility at the same time I'm going through this. And I was really struggling with, do I talk about, and she, one of the best ways that Sherry has loved me was she was able to separate her grief from what I, like she was able to acknowledge the legitimacy of my, even as if she didn't do what other people, well, at least you have a baby right. and at least he's healthy right. and, you know, it all turned out right. okay. And she was instead able to recognize what a huge trauma that was. And it was more than just the traumatic thing itself. It was all the questions about mm-hmm. God and myself uh-huh. and, you know, was I going to be okay as a parent and all yeah. of the things that came with that. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah. And so I think that I, I would love for us to be able to do, I would love to see the church do a better job in general of when people are wrestling with faith, when they're wrestling with grief, because the two are usually tied Yeah, and, you know, um, usually are, and, and I've heard a lot of sermons, oops, <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs> If you're going to follow this podcast, just know if you go to my episodes, cats will probably wander across the screen or make noise at some point in the park. Because we, wow. (laughs) But yeah, I think, I think that when I think like you have done a good job with your kids and their friends, I think of, you've done a better job probably than I have of, of with the friends you know, of, of your kids' friends getting involved in their lives and building the kind of conversation, you know, relationship that you can open up meaningful conversation journey with them. I think that as you were talking, I just was sort of confronted with the reality that one of the best gifts I think Larry gave me, gave us is his example of this sort of insatiable questioning and there weren't any questions that were off the table in the, in the, 
permission. That was a word you used earlier. Like the permission to ask those questions. And and by that coming through, Larry sort of a God-given permission and invitation to like come to me. I think it's another word, another phrase you use, like come to me with your with your challenges, with your questions, with your doubts, with your shame, like all all the things, bring them all, you know? And and I think that's the message that I want to give to my kids and their friends. I don't know that it always comes through because I can be dismissive and combative and all the things myself, but that's really the 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 environment, the culture that I think you said this earlier that the church needs and that we want to support and model and invite people on to talk about just real life and why it's so hard and how to navigate these things that are so awful. Like you describe things in your story. I have things in my story. And then these moments are that are transcendent and holy and so compelling that you can hardly mm-hmm. put words to them that offset the awful, you know, and how to, how to navigate these extremes and reconcile this broken world we live in with this place we're going to, you know, how we live in the not yet, but coming when the not yet never seems to end. Mm -hmm. And yeah. So, or yeah, or it just seems like I, I read something that a woman, I follow a woman who's a pastor's wife in Ukraine Wow. who has been writing almost daily updates of, about what their experience yeah. is. And and that duality of crying out for deliverance, living with missiles, at, you know, taking down apartment buildings, killing civilians, wow. all of that, that now and the not yet yeah. happens on so many yeah. levels. <laughs> so many levels. Right, right. And it feels sometimes... Yeah you know, like it's, it's not right somehow to struggle with your not yet when there are people in the Ukraine living something out of a history book, you know, living something so urgent and traumatic and nightmarish as war. And yet like our not yet is just as real and just as broken and has just as much opportunity, I think, for the holy to come in and transform it. Lillian, yesterday I mentioned I had my my group with the three women yesterday. From my friend Lillian, who will probably be a guest on one of these episodes at some point. I know Lillian. I can't wait to hear you guys talk. Uh, She's just so wisely yesterday brought brought up the whole issue of hope deferred makes the heart sick, but when the desire comes, it's a tree of life. And she said. It's always, it's deferred for all of us. Like there's no way to escape that hope is deferred on some level until heaven. And, but when the desire comes, it'll be a tree of like, and, and, and I, yeah, I think that is true no matter. And, and there are layers to it. There are certainly everybody lives with deferred hope. And when you're in the middle of war, you're, losing on a whole lot of other levels too but so i don't want to minimize or like 
act like the playing field is right. equal or right. whatever. But there, there is a sense in which no matter how much life is working, it's yeah. not working. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I think actually well, that is a profound statement that you were talking earlier about seasons of life. I think that was a big, like, aha for me at some point in those early seasons where I finally accepted that life just wasn't going to work and, it, and I didn't have to make it work. Like that back to what mm -hmm. some of the pressure was, was this belief that I could somehow get to this destination where I was holy enough and had figured things out enough and solved enough problems that my life would work. And finally got, I don't know, old enough, you know, cynical enough, I don't know, or just convicted that life just doesn't work. It just doesn't. And that there, that there can no. be goodness in that, that God can use that in ways that are right. really important and good for me. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah. 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 It's good. Well, I, I really love these conversations. I kind of, I was just thinking a few minutes ago, I'm kind of sad because we're going to be talking to other people and I'd love to just keep talking to you on this, but. I was just thinking I ought to have you on as a, as a guest on mine at some point so I can ask. You. Yeah, that sounds like a good plan. Well, I'm looking forward to these conversations though. I think, you know, Larry taught that conversations matter, that something happens in conversation that is formational and. I, you know, as I alluded to earlier, kind of thought he was not quite right about that, but I have come to believe that conversations are really powerful and that God is actually, as he says, present when two or more are gathered. And so I think this is going to be fun and going to be really interesting. I hope people find it interesting and enjoy listening and then take some of these ideas and some of these questions into their own conversations with their people. Yeah. So before we wrap up, because I know we, we probably should before yeah. Tila, I do have to ask you, how did you go from being isolated, feeling like you didn't need any, to kind of accepting the idea that you were relational, to being somebody who actually held house church in your home, <laughs> like for what, 10 for, years or something? Yeah. It was a long time yeah. you because to me that's amazing you are one of the like you've had your feet on the ground nitty-gritty relating stuff more than and been more successful about at it i know it has had issues sure. but it's yeah, messy it is, it's it messy. definitely messy yeah you know um, i think honestly roseanne if my best answer to that question is that that's what it took when I look back at the theme, if I had to try to trace a theme in my life, there is a lot of isolation and loneliness and like strong commitment to self-sufficiency. Um, and so many things just structurally in my life that made that happen. And then there were a lot of, you know, erroneous beliefs and, and yet God and his goodness, like I married the most extroverted person I've ever met. And had then four little extroverts. And so they are constantly, I mean, constantly 
inviting bad <laughs> into relational situations and engagement and have been for the last 20, well, 30 years, I've been 31 years, I've been married. And so, so, so part of it is just that God set my life up to like uh-huh. on a grand collision with relationship, you know, and I'm really grateful. Right. Like, I don't know if I had married another introvert or, you know, had children who were introverted and who cooperated with my desire for some of these other things, I wouldn't have had the opportunity and the stretching that that God has put into my life. And I think then Larry and another ministry that's really important to us who is led also by a man named Larry. So I feel like God gave me my Larry's. That's what I call them. But they just challenged me and taught me and kind of kept pushing me to be open to relationship in new and different ways. I think in a, I'm in a season right now where you mentioned the messiness of community and church. And like, I experienced a lot of pain through that and have been from just resistant, downright resistant and rebellious to being and reluctant and risk averse. And it may be moving into another more open relational season. So I wish I could say that like I did something. I, I just kept living the life I was given, you know, and responding to it sometimes well and sometimes really badly. And God has been really gracious to keep offering me opportunity, even when I'm mm-hmm. not very open to it. But he's definitely expanded my capacity, for sure. Oh, it <laughs> you know? to just <laughs> there was one point in our in our journey with Christian community where we we actually have been blessed with a fairly large home and that's another whole story but we had we would have like between 35 and 55 people at our house every week and we we broke up into small groups and every bedroom in my house was used almost as a Sunday school room or as a place for people to meet and for someone who's really private and reserved and, and like I said, introverted it, even though I was the one offering, it always felt like a violation. And, and it was just God like stretching me and saying, I want every corner, you know, I want every room of your heart and your home. So God did a lot of those kind of things. And, and I'm really grateful and I'm still somewhat resist it at times so yeah yeah I can imagine I can yeah I can imagine that would be an ongoing yeah. battle it would be easier if people handle it well it's when oh, they right. don't that I would think <laughs> really ch- no that's exactly so. right their comments about how my 10 year old didn't clean up his room or you know my 16 year old daughter and you know I'm just thinking you don't see that my 16-year-old daughter lets you in her bedroom to meet and have, you know, right. like, so yeah, sure, all of those things. And, and yet, yeah, you know, it was, that was one of the sweetest seasons of our life. Really, really hard, mm-hmm. but good. Mm-hmm. Well, 
this has been fun and I'm looking forward to doing more. And I trust that our audience is going to come back and join us. Kep will have the first Tuesday in February and, and then one of us will be on the second and then the other will be on the fourth. <laughs> We're still, everybody who's, who's a friend of larger story, you guys can pray for us as we are entering this new endeavor, but hopefully it's going to serve all of you. Yes. Trying something new. So. Yeah. And I think a book club, we made reference mm -hmm. to the fact that the pressure's off is, is kind of our focus, our deep dive focus for larger story right now for this first quarter. If you would like to be able to have your own conversations that go deeper the book club reading and relating book club would be a really good place to do that. And you can go to largerstory.com and sign up for that. And we meet monthly and you can break into triads and there's a lot of really good discussion guides and things like that that are available. Anything else you want to, Carlene, you talk about the course. Yeah, we're, we're, well, the we're course. still uh, finishing up testing and in plans to launch the course, which is about all the things we're just talking about. And this, this <laughs> idea of relational spirituality, you know, I think one thing that may not have been clear, but when we talked about our early lives, I would say one way of describing what I learned was more of a behavioral spirituality. Like you do these things, you learn these things, more rational, cognitive kind of approach to Christian life. And Larry comes along and says, no, all of life is relational. And I think if you listen to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he's kind of saying the same thing. And so that's what we're talking about. And we've got this course in development that is kind of an introductory to what does that mean? What is relational spirituality? And, and how do we kind of get it in as we grow and learn and interact with each other? That'll be coming soon. So thanks for joining us, everybody. And we'll see you next time. If you like what you heard today, hit the like button just below. Then come back by subscribing to our podcast channel. For more resources on relational spirituality, go to our website at largerstory.com. Thank you.